Typically, we don't start from greenfield in these scenarios. I and mean, you already have factories and all these things and you have a data management in the factory and in the cloud. But the real starting point is what's your current challenges and what do you think you cannot solve with this in the next five years? And often this maps exactly to why people anyway took a look at Kafka already because their existing solutions either do not scale well or they're only batch or they are not ready to scale up to the future regarding data integration or, and that's also what we're hearing the same thing often then, it does not scale well, but in parallel while to up, we upgrade to a more open and scalable architecture, we also want to get rid of some of these legacy proprietary technologies. And this is really a combination. This is not just about the license cost. You are listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, it's real estate and industry 4.0, and most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. This episode is sponsored by Platform of Trust. I like Platform of Trust because it enables companies to create value from any type of data. Therefore, it saves time, money, and it's the perfect tool for companies who want to make data-driven decisions on data they can trust. They make it easy to collect, harmonize, and trust the data from different sources and basically any source that you want. And you don't need to hire 10 IT technicians or spend hundreds of thousands for a cloud platform because Platform of Trust can manage integrations and you'll see if something goes down in real time. Platform of Trust enables companies to take action based on the data that you can trust. Today, not tomorrow. This is part two of last episode. If you did not listen to it, make sure to catch up with that one first. Okay, so in layman's terms, what is a broker, what is a cluster, and why is that important? That's a good point. So, so why listeners heard now a lot about the use cases and so on. And now it's important also to understand how it works under the hood. And that's exactly this point. So in the end, Kafka is a distributed system. This means it's highly available even if nodes go down or if network to one node does not work anymore. So it's a distributed system by nature. It always works 24-7. You have rolling upgrades. You have backwards compatibility. These are many characteristics which make Kafka also different from the existing legacy and proprietary technologies, right? But with this in mind also, it's a distributed system. So you need more than one component in that. And this is in the end what these brokers are. So a normal Kafka cluster from mission-critical workloads has at least three brokers, which are running in three different computers or in the cloud, even across different availability zones, so that even if a zone goes down, you still uh, continue to run. And this is therefore the brokers and a cluster. Perfect. So let's take railway, for instance. So you have trains, and I think that's a good example because it's sort of kind of complicated and very similar to buildings and other assets or entities. Especially nowadays, buildings as well as trains, I guess, have pretty sketchy internet connection or you don't want to get the data of the building. I think that's a pretty good example. So if looking at a train and then you have, what are we going to say? Okay, let's have the cafeteria, like a point of sale. We have the sensors from the wheels. We have sensors from all over the place and asking how the train is operating. Maybe GPS tracking and all these kind of things. And I want to process data only in the train and then maybe for all or some data then to be replicated to the cloud and being sent elsewhere. What would that distributed architecture look like just for the train itself? Do I need a cluster? Do I need a broker? Is it five brokers? Is it 200 brokers? Is it five clusters? What are we talking about here? Where to get started? 
That's a good point. And that's exactly the question about what's the criticality of the data and can you live with an outage of an hour until you get to the next train station? Because it's only highly available and survives outages if it's a cluster. And a cluster means um, three brokers, right? At least. And the other option, if you don't need high availability, is one broker. So one broker is simple and it's easy for infrastructures which cannot provide a distributed data center in the train. And this is in the end depending on the use cases you want to build. So if you, it's more about things like just customer experience, then it's okay. And also if you want to consume all the sensor data, right, from the rails and from what's happening so that you can analyze what was the problem with this train. In many cases, simply, it's too expensive to send everything to the cloud and there's also not a good internet connection. So you go to the train, but then you have to make the decision and it's a hard decision. Can I really store all the sensor data in a distributed way, which is three times the data and three times the cost and it's like more complex infrastructure? Or is it okay even if we analyze all the sensor data and if it goes down, we lose this data? In many cases, it's okay to lose it because there is so many train rides every day. And if one goes down once a year, then you typically can live with that. And also for the customer experience, if the online ordering does not work on one day a year, then you go to the cafeteria and order it by yourself. So in, in most cases, it's okay-ish. And therefore, I would say in scenarios like a train, most people will go with the one broker because simply they don't have a data center in the train. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. No, I don't think a lot of train operators have a data center on the train. So basically what we're saying here that is, okay, let's say you have the sensors in the train. And then you don't want everything to go to the cloud because that costs too much, but you still want to have some kind of onboard logic, right? What would this be? Maybe that could be as like break malfunctioning that should so like go directly to HQ, but then there are some onboard logic that should just stay. And then when it hits the train station, then that would be sent up to the cloud, right? Again, what is a broker? What would be a cluster and these kind of things? Can you please elaborate a little bit on that? From a technical perspective, this is not just a broker because the broker is just storing and sending data, but it's an additional process, which just the data processing and data integration, right? So from a technical perspective, it's another process, but that's exactly a very common use case where you do this kind of pre-processing and aggregation at the edge. And then the most important information is sent somewhere else, like asking, hey, in the next train stop, we need to replace a door or something like that. And this is also very important because what you mentioned earlier, many of these use cases also are bidirectional. So you don't just send data out of the train to the cloud, but you also need to send data back, like a confirmation that, yes, in the next train station, we will also get the drinks for the cola because it's out of order and, and all these kind of things, right? So that's exactly what's happening very often with this processing at the edge so that you only send the smaller and critical data sets to the cloud. Then we have sort of the brokers covered. And I love what you said there as well, as I mean, we have a broker and that is sort of like storing information and then you need something else around it in terms of the data strategy, logic, or whatever that could be. However... Where does the cluster come in? Is that for all of the trains? Is it per train station? Just an example. Sure, sure. There is always, typically in these use cases, not one cluster, but several ones. And so in each train, it's a separate installation. And for each installation, you have to decide, is it one broker or is it a cluster of three or more brokers? And again, the main question here is, is it highly available or not? So each train has its own cluster. Even the cluster is just one broker, so it's not highly available. And then in addition to deploying one Kafka in each train, you also have a little bit bigger installation of Kafka somewhere in a big data center or cloud. And that's where you aggregate the data from all the trains. And this is again where this replication comes into play, which is built into the solution. 
So that you replicate data from the trains into one aggregated Kafka cluster where then you can run your analytics and any other use cases or integrate to other cloud solutions like a CRM system or MES system or something like that. So that's how it works. You have small clusters or single brokers in the trains at the edge and you have a bigger cluster in the cloud. And just to give you a number here, so we calculate around that with each broker, you can process around 50 megabyte per second. And with this, then you can make calculations. So if you have 10 gigabytes throughput per second, then you need something like a little bit more bigger deployments, right? But for most of the customers, honestly, today, even three or five brokers is good enough for the throughput they have today because it's not everybody's a tech giant. And this is a, a very good other point. So many can live with a small cluster very long. So if you think about that 100 megabyte throughput per second, that's a lot for, especially for business data, right? And Kafka scales well, even with a small deployment. And the other point is in the cloud, typically anyway, you don't want to run that by yourself, but you use Confluent Cloud, which is a fully managed service. And there you don't even care about these technical things we just discussed, like brokers. You just have consumption-based pricing and just do it. And you start small because all these use cases we discussed today, it's a journey, right? So you don't deploy it in all trains. You run a pilot in one or two trains, and then you onboard it in one region and so on. And so it's a big journey. And so from the train perspective, it will be the same hardware deployed to each train. So that's the same everywhere. You start small and you understand how it works. But in the cloud, you scale up elastically depending on your workloads. I think that's fantastic. And again, it goes back to the cloud native journey and as in how to actually start. I love this, you know. <laughs> now we talk about trains, but this is the same for buildings and this kind of infrastructure, whether it's factories, buildings, et cetera, et cetera, as in create a pilot, scale it up as soon as possible, decide where you want to get data from and to remember bi-directionality and going back to that side. One of the problems that I see here is that even modern factories as well as buildings, they're built sort of with open APIs, hopefully, but they're not necessarily connected, as in interconnected. Maybe the production line is connected and that's connected to an MES system and all these kind of things, but they're not necessarily connected to the BMS system or the supply chain and all these kind of things. How do you want to connect everything? And I think we talked about that a little bit before, about Audi, their initiative, Volkswagen Group with their industrial cloud, AWS, and these kind of things. I don't think there are a lot of companies that are there yet, as in having everything connected. And going back to when I started reading or listening to Kafka and Confluent and these kind of things, schemas, that was something that I was really, really interested in. I know it sounds super nerdy, but coming from the building automation space, BMS-based and smart buildings and all these kind of things, I think schemas was really, really important. Because we have these different vendors that say the, I wouldn't say the wrong things, but they say different things, but they mean the same thing and they label it differently. So what I'm talking about here is, of course, metadata tagging and building industry, we have Haystack, Brick Schema, Real Estate Core. But how are companies in the industrial scene, because I know that you know a lot about it, how are they working with these kind of things? Because if data is going to come from different places, how do we make sense of that? either respective of in the industry or so like industry agnostic, but how does that come into play? Not only like static data, but can you actually do it on the fly? Does that make sense? Because that's sort of what I was, I wouldn't say attracted to, but that's exactly what I mean. Because metadata tagging, at least in the building automation industry, but also elsewhere, is such a big problem because, again, data coming from different places, you don't know what it means. And a lot of the time in creating value 
because you want to do AI or you want to do advanced analytics or whatever you want to do, is to clean the data. So what do you say about these kind of things? It is, and that makes a lot of sense. And therefore, as I said, so in addition to Kafka, um, the ecosystem has a lot of different components. And actually, over 80% of our customers use our schema registry for exactly this reason. Because one of the big event streaming is that you typically don't have a pipeline from just A to B. But when someone produces some data like a sensor and you have it in Kafka, then different consumers want to consume the data. Some are real-time for real-time analytics. Some others are near real-time, for example, a text search. And some others are batch. So um, something like in the open source space like Hadoop or Spark or any Google Cloud service or so. And therefore, they have their different consumption paradigm, but all of them want to get the same data. And because in Kafka, you have different producers and different consumers, and they're decoupled from each other. Again, this is one of the strengths of Kafka because it's not like a web service and synchronous call. And you have the decoupling. But therefore, it's a great advantage, but therefore, you also need to enforce that they speak the same language regarding the messages. And this is exactly where the schema registry comes in. And this is also, therefore, the core foundation for all the other data governance things we discussed, like data lineage and data catalog and enforcement. And the other important thing here is it's important to enforce this on both the server side and the client side, right? So, and this is also what the schema registry with Confluent provides. So that on the one side, in the beginning, actually, that's pretty interesting. So a few years ago, Schema Registry only had the client-side enforcement and validation, which works very well if you are one team and everybody uses this API. But then actually, in some cases, some other teams simply send data to Kafka without using the Schema Registry API. And, and that's possible because you don't enforce it, right? And if you are just one business team, then that works because everybody knows it. But even if someone else doesn't only know it, um, he doesn't use it. And therefore, on the server side, it crashed. And therefore, it's very important. And this is, by the way, also not just from a business perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective, as soon as you process payments, for example. And therefore, now the schema enforcement is also on the server side. And that's really critical to have it across the whole end-to-end solution. See this in front of me, as in you have a small ocean and then everyone is fishing in that ocean or like that small lake maybe, and then everyone knows everyone. But then one day, sort of like that, this gets expanded and there comes new people. Maybe they want to do more fishing, but then they also want to use the lake for different purposes. And that is when it becomes a problem. If you don't have a standardized process to the lake, as in who goes in, who goes out, then that would be a problem. And you don't have control. And so the schema registries, they act as maybe then the gatekeepers, and then you can have like these mini ontologies, and that of course could be in a digital twin setting and all these kind of things. But a lot of what we talked about is pretty technical. We're looking at the use cases, and of course we're trying to demystify it a little bit, but the decision-making capabilities from a smart city perspective, railway, payment, shipping, buildings, whatever it is, you know, I'm a fan of digital twins because of the shared reality. As in the visual component, it fosters collaboration, whereas the back-end digital twin, that fosters, you know, real-time integration, or at least data integrations, like the real world. So you can have a map, you can see the trains, you can make these decisions based on then a Confluent Kafka infrastructure. But the digital twin is there, you know, to have the CFO, the CEO, you, me, whoever consultants, developers, engineers in the same room virtual or not, we're looking at the same thing. It has this backend architecture, but it's sort of visualized in the same way or in a way that is more natural for people. The reason why I'm sort of talking about this is, of course, because when you see stuff, you're probably like me as in you see the backend technical architecture, how this would be set up and all these kind of things. What kind of like the streaming platform aspects, clusters, brokers, et cetera, et cetera. But 
is this a challenge to get the cross to the ones who make the decisions? Because again, we need five clusters here, we need three brokers, we need 200 brokers, just listening to the people describing the use cases, what are they trying to achieve? As in, how do you get that across to the ones who make the decisions? Is that still a challenge? Is it important to be able to convey this in a natural way? What do you think about this? Both. It's a challenge and it's important. Um, <laughs> of course, on the one side, what we discussed a lot today is about architectures and also a little bit about technology. So that's where the developers are and the architects, right? And this is the one perspective. And this is where everybody loves Kafka. So many people or our customers actually are a public reference because this way they can hire new people because people want to work on these cutting edge technologies. But that's only the one side of the story. On the other side, if you want to have a successful business, you also need to be able to convince the decision makers. So that's the other side of the level when you talk to the executives in the room, right? Which have the money and the budget and have to sign the contract. We always talk to both sides in the room in different discussions and on different levels. So the executives don't talk about brokers, but we talk more about what's the business value. So this is really very important. And therefore, one basic rule of thumb is we don't spend and invest much time on our side with prospects or customers if there is no business case. So a technical proof of concept does not make much sense. And there's good reasons for that. So this technology is so battle tested across the globe for so high throughput and high mission critical SLAs. That's not a problem. And, and we don't need to prove it anymore. And, and most even trust that, right? Because it's so battle tested and proven. But on the other side, why do you get batched for that? And that's exactly why change, why now and why with event streaming. And this is sometimes hard because it's also a new paradigm. So it's going away from this store everything in a database or data lake and then some time later, pull it out there again. Because still for some use cases, it's good enough, right? So if you do just reporting for KPIs for your management, then you don't need that. On the other side, in some use cases, you simply need this. Either there is high volume, so your traditional databases don't work anymore, or also you need other real-time correlation requirements to keep this short. In most cases, there is a business case why you need this new paradigm and technology. If you don't need it, it will not happen. Some customers do big pilots in their research centers, but if there is no real business case, then it will not be deployed. And therefore, as I said, so it's typically a journey. Though what we ask customers to find a first business case to implement as a pilot where you see added value. And from a decision maker perspective, this is very traditional. This can either be a completely new platform, which builds something innovative, which you couldn't build before, and which you also cannot build with traditional technologies, like um, predictive sensor analytics in real time with integration to legacy and new technologies. That's what Kafka is great. Or you use it for a cost reduction. Like we have plenty of customers um, which have a lot of legacy systems running. They are proprietary. They do not scale well, and they cost a lot of money. And therefore, the business case often is simply, hey, we can replace 100 MQ servers, messaging servers, with one single Kafka cluster. Or we can offload data from a mainframe where you pay for every single transaction. So this is pretty easy also for the decision maker. This is actually the easiest way to convince them because this can save a lot of money. This is still a technical point per se, as in a technical IT director should be involved in these decision making capabilities as in knowing these kind of things. More as in, when I look at it at buildings, it's more about the future flexibility. As in, yes, we have old traditional databases, whatever, hard to get data out or even easy to get data out, but then it's hard to sort of make sense of the data. But they're really, really good at doing one or two things that people know about. But again, if you're opening a tourist resort, you don't necessarily know who the people are that are going to come with the lake. And I think that is the problem. I think today we're seeing that everything is shifting really, really fast. We have the pandemic right now. We sort of like put a dramatic change in how people do business, as in, of course, we need to do more things remote. 
We didn't foresee this. Do you have the black swans? And then again, looking what is happening next year, the year after, in five years, how do we create sort of a strategy around handling the unknown? Because if we need a new use case, we could easily do that instead of, holy cow, I have all this data trapped in this whatever database and it goes really, really well right now. But we know that if it is a twist in this or if it's like a churn, we're screwed. We can't keep up. We know that we don't have the agility or the resiliency to do that, especially for big organizations. That is a point that I hear a lot right now. Of course, in the smart city space where data integration is still a huge, huge challenge. And again, we have this right now, but knowing how to work with a future that is unknown, that is still a challenge. The big point, what you also said right now, my discussions are also more still technical, even if you talk to more like an exec. But the point is, um, if you really want to talk about the business perspective to a CEO, this is typically then not Confluent itself, because Confluent is Kafka, it's event streaming, it's technology. So we don't have a CRM system like Salesforce, for example, to for an example, right? And therefore, this is then either driven and the company already has projects to solve a challenge and they reach out to us or our account executives finds out that they have this problem. Or on the other side, it's more than with partners because we don't do the projects ourselves. We are the technology provider. And then partners like the SIs, the big global SIs of this world, or also smaller companies, they are then working together with the executives on solving a business problem. And then as part of solving the business problem, you go to the technology. And that honestly, really, that's always a problem if you're just um, a technology provider. And that was true for Tipco, for Talent, for all the companies I worked for. And this is simply if you don't have a business solution, then you are only part of the solution. And therefore, you always have to work together with others on, on starting with the business problem. That's definitely a key thing which everybody has to be aware of. What we do on the other side, however, when people have these challenges to solve, we still provide the business perspective. So we do a TCO and ROI discussions with the customer, how much money they can save or what's the added value. So that's where we help. So this is the business engagement we do. And that's even where the CEO or CIO understands the added value. But I'm typically, again, we do with partners or someone else on solving it on a very high level. Just alone, it's really, really interesting. So let's say, hypothetically, we have a construction company that has about 4,000 employees. They have a national-wide business turnover of $4 billion, whatever, and they have a data infrastructure. It might not be super scalable. It might be more traditional side, as in servicing their business. And they don't necessarily have, you know, like connected construction sites, but they want to get a more of an understanding of what is going on. So if they would have the CIO and then open up the hood underneath to say, okay, this is what we are doing right now. And then you can have a look and then say, okay, this, what do you have in mind for your five-year game plan, 10-year game plan? And then you can be there in the room and say, okay, this is how you get started. From opening up, where is the data today? Transitioning them and helping them on their cloud native journey. Still, it's just a purely technical perspective that is sort of tied to a 10-year game plan. But I think it's going back to modern companies today. I think more and more companies are aware that is, of course, they got to see technology as an enabler, but it's also as in we need to have technology in our DNA. Would that be a good starting point for Confluent for you to step into these kind of discussions to work as an enabler, whether it's an SI or a system integrator, or if I would open up these discussions to someone? Is that what you do today? I'm just trying to figure out sort of like what is the value and how you deliver it to customers today. That's what's actually happening all the time, right? So because typically we don't start from Greenfield in these scenarios and you already have factories and all these things and you have a data management in the factory and in the cloud. 
But the real starting point is what's your current challenges and what do you think you cannot solve with this in the next five years? And often this maps exactly to why people anyway took a look at Kafka already because their existing solutions either do not scale well or they're only batch or they are not ready to scale up to the future regarding data integration or, and that's also what we hear in the same thing often then, it does not scale well, but in parallel while to up, we upgrade to a more open and scalable architecture, we also want to get rid of some of these legacy proprietary technologies. And often this is really a combination. This is not just about the license cost, but this is really, they know, and this is more complex and this is too much. They have tens or hundreds of different softwares in the edge and they want to get rid of 80% of them and use it in a more open architecture. And, and that's really much more motivation often than just the business case itself. I work a lot with these smart city directors and real estate people that not necessarily are this technical. And that's sort of my job to sort of understand this technical stuff so that I know what I'm talking about, so that I can sort of traverse these conversations with engineers as well as decision makers and to try to demystify this to make sense of it for people that are not necessarily that technical. So one analogy that I've been using is that if you have 10 databases where you're picking data out from, and a lot of these applications that are tied to them, but the databases represent Coca-Cola bottles or Coke cans. So you would hang them upside down in the roof, and then you string them up, and then you can say, okay, where do we start? Where are we going to get data out from? And this, of course, could also be data from the outside, but let's just start with this. Some of them are really new and they have, let's say, open APIs and these kind of things. Some of them doesn't have basically anything, but you need to start somewhere and you want to take data out of these and then store them in a streaming platform or make sense of them in a more holistic context. And I think that's sort of one of the important things is just not to go with the data that they either they don't have or that is really hard to get, but actually find these Coke bottles, you know, like you screwed off the cork and then the data pours out really fast to show that this works. You create these use cases, going back to the pilots where data is available, find the business case, make the argument, show this to your organization that this is how it can be done. And then again, you know, going from application to application, going from database to database, and sort of like that is my roadmap as in how to remove the 80% of the applications that exist, but still keeping the value as in what is in the data? How would you be able to put that in a bowl that you can make sense of? And I think there we go back to what we talked about initially, that you have possibilities, you have freedom of choice to either get a vendor that works on top of a holistic data structure that is sort of like metadata tag that you can make sense of, and to be able to do this really well. And you can also have the possibility to go to a web agency to say, okay, this is the application that we want to build for a specific purpose where people are sitting in the organization because the data is already there. And that's the way that I approach it as in getting the options for future flexibility. Does that make sense as in sort of an approach, as in a roadmap to do these kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe to add to that, because we also work a lot with the public sector about smart city. And here I have to say, in contrary to many of the other use cases I talked about here, really, and we're in very early stage very often. And one reason for that is that in the public sector and smart city, of course, it's always slow. <laughs> That's the first point. But on the other side, also the big challenges in smart cities, it's not just a question about the government or, or one vendor or one city, but really about integrating with so many different kinds of vendors. And um, just to give you one of the examples, because on the other side, we're working with many car makers and also with many TO one providers. That's the supplier which produces the things for the car maker, right? So there's a tier one, tier two, tier three. And tier one is the one which ships the final product which you embed into the car, for example. 
the funny thing is, even from a car perspective, many of these new cars, they have connectivity to the internet by the car maker, but also independently of this by the tier one provider. So two connectivity to the internet. So two different interfaces and APIs. And now the public sector, the smart city has to connect to the car maker to the tier one technology and also this to 10 or 20 different car makers because they all use their own technologies today. And this is now just a challenge with integrating with the car information, like when you want to do smart traffic and parking and so on. But then you integrate with the solution for the parking and then with the traffic lights. And this is again, different vendors. And, and with this, this is the big challenge of the smart city. And this is again, why we talk to a public sector about the smart cities, because here, it's even more critical that this smart city technology is not proprietary, but open so that you can integrate with any vendor and any existing technology, but also with future technologies, which don't even exist today. This is the key part why even if a car maker provides only their own proprietary solution, which is fine because they don't want to share it with other car makers anyway. But the smart cities, which have to integrate with all of them, they need to be open and scalable for the future. And that's therefore a really perfect example for event streaming with Kafka and Confluent. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the many screenshots that I clipped for all your articles and interviews and these kind of things. And I think that is delivering real insights at the right time for the right people. And I think that revolves around taking data from a data lake, having all these sensors, all these data sources, being able to talk to each other, to get cameras on the edge and weather data and all these kind of things. I mean, what is the business case here? And so to go taking these data sources, creating a data product and delivering that to whoever needs it the most. And that will make the smart city directors act in a way so that they control the data and not so that data controls them, which I think is where it's heading, right? I also work with these smart city directors or digitalization strategies today. And I think like everyone, well, all of them are trying to get data out of from their existing uh, infrastructure, which we already talked about, but it's also in regards to open data. Going for Sweden, for instance, I think it's number two innovation leaders in the world and from a national perspective. And that is great, but it's also done in silos. We're one of the worst countries in Europe when it comes to utilizing and leveraging open data at scale for public institutions. So there's a government initiative right now where they want people, companies, cities, and all these kind of things and municipalities and regions to collaborate more around utilizing open data. And I'm also involved in this EU granting perspective about the very same things. What is your experience with open data from a smart city perspective? Is that sort of being used right now? What are the challenges here? Honestly, I don't see much there yet because it's so slow. And the problem is often when you define such a standard, it takes five years or longer. And when you define the standard, so some standards existing today and which are modern is something like SOAP web services, right? Which is a very much legacy technology in the end today, but now it's a standard. And so this is therefore really hard. And I hope that the public sector also gets more agile in these cases, because to, just to give you one counter example, what we just discussed about the use cases for the smart sector, um, there is companies which more or less do exactly this already. So all the ride-sharing companies, this is in the US, Uber and Lyft, for example, but the same is true for others in Europe and Asia. And you can see so many articles about that. All of them use Kafka for their infrastructure to integrate with all their taxi drivers, with all their customers on the mobile app. 
but also with the Wi-Fi hotspots, but also with the GPS coordination. And they correlate all this information in real time. And in the end, a smart city project is not that much different for doing traffic improvement, right? The only difference is that Ubers and Lyfts of this world, they can do what they want. They don't, or at least they, they don't ask and have to coordinate with many others. And that's the difference. But from a technology perspective, the interfaces are open. And that's the important thing with Kafka. And then you use REST interfaces or JSON technology, like these open standards. So that's the important thing that it's not a commercial property protocol and with this in the end you're solved but then when you try to standardize even more on top of that then it gets very slow and often it's outdated when it's released so that's the problem i have not seen this in the smart city sector but i have seen this in other industries where typically many customers go around the proposed standards because they are too slow and outdated so that's reality very often unfortunately and then what happens is that it gets proprietary and then people are getting locked into the future forever right in the off chance that they develop some kind of open source standard themselves? Or is this the classic IoT trap? As in, we're looking at the IoT landscape, we don't see anything that fits our purpose, let's create another IoT standard. It's definitely a trap. So what we simply often see then is that you cannot connect everything to everything because it's not compatible to each other. Or the other way around, this is, of course, while you build your own proprietary solution under the hood, even if it's just open technologies like Kafka, but in the end, it's your own one, nobody else uses it. But then still, there is often then some kind of open API in terms of you use some kind of API management where you provide some of your internal proprietary stuff to the public with an open interface. So that's, of course, happening. But this, again, is then, then more lightweight. So it's a very simple API and it's not a complex standard. So that's, I think, the key so that it gets adopted everywhere. So you mentioned something with the coordination efforts from a smart city perspective, as in many people are involved having to make a decision that either affect them or someone else. And it's actually really hard to make decisions in silos. Well, it's easy to make decisions in silos, but it's challenging to make uh, decisions when there are a lot of people. Is there a difference between the Dubai, Middle East, Saudi kind of things, and as in how they treat this project, as in, okay, let's go out, spend a couple of billion, let's create a smart city, whilst I know that for a fact in Sweden and other places might be, we have to do this incrementally, we got to do it like the proof of concept stage, we're going to scale it up, and all of this takes a lot of time. And I think that, of course, we have the public tenders, as in low-cost rules, and low-cost doesn't necessarily mean great value, obviously. So I think that that's the, the coordination challenges, right? But you also said something interesting as in reading the data model, needing the data model, so the data structure standardization between open APIs and all these kind of things. And I think that's also where I see, like with using modern technologies, a lot of these things, these challenges can be solved. And instead of working with a data model up front, you have an ontology that gets mapped to the data. You bring all of these together so you don't need sort of like that static approach. And that works with the data irrespective of where the data source is coming from. And then pulling that enough or pulling that together in a format where collaboration, coordination is much, much easier. Because you're not talking about the brokers, the clusters, the open APIs, or like the invisible data streams, but you're actually looking at a context that people can understand, as in the city, the country, or whatever operating context that a company have, but in a natural way, so that people can, again, talk around it and talk to it and, you know, and understand the way that the world works by creating a digital twin perspective that, again, like allows people to record their reality and work with it in a natural way, both for man and machine or woman and machine for that matter, right? 
Because in my mind, I think that's sort of the last piece of the puzzle. And I love Kafka as an architecture because for me, it's definitely future-proof if you know what you're doing. But then again, the decision-making capabilities on top, I think that's what needs to happen faster. I think that's where the slowness is. What Kafka can do, what hundreds of millions of messages per second. And when you're looking at people, they don't necessarily do hundreds of millions of decisions per second, right? And I think yet it might be one decision per year. So I think like looking at it from that perspective, as in you have like the people dimension and you want to create sort of like faster time to value. And I think that decision-making capabilities need to be the same level as in Kafka architecture. What do you think about that? I think that's a very good summary. So it's really the point. First, define your business case, your problems, what you want to do, what you plan to do. Important, not just what you plan to do in the next year, but maybe in the next five years in an approach like a journey. And with that in mind, then you can plan accordingly and then you can evaluate and make the right decision where does Kafka and event stream make sense and where you don't need it. You don't need it for, need it for everything and where it also complements existing technologies you already have in place in the house. So that's really the right way to go. So always start from a business perspective. Also, when we engage with you and we will ask you these questions because it only makes sense if you have a real idea of what you need to do or what your challenges are from a business perspective. And that's, again, the TCO and the ROIs or the total cost of ownership and the return on investment are important from a decision-maker perspective. And without that, even if the project is cool and the technology is nice, the project will not be successful because it will not have budget and all these things. And so that's really the right way to get started. And therefore, it's always two perspectives. It's a business perspective and a technical perspective where you have to work. Perfect, Kai. I mean, I think that that is brutal. ROI, TCO, it's so important. I learned so much in this episode. And I think it's been amazing to talk to you about this. Okay, so for people that want to find you, how can they do that? My website, kai.kai-banner. So I'm better take a look at the website. <laughs> there is a lot of blogs and, and use cases about event streaming with Kafka. And besides that, also feel free to connect on LinkedIn and Twitter to stay in touch. I'm glad to share um, more updates with you there and also have discussions with someone else. That would be great. Perfect. Thank you so much. I had a blast and you definitely need to come on as a guest even more in the future. Then we're going to talk more about the use cases. And I think that we're going to have a lot of questions from the podcast listeners and a more how to sell to executives and all these kind of things. But I mean, like, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Buildings podcast that is part two of two. Was it something that really stood out about this episode? Something that you agreed with or disagreed with? Or do you know someone that would need to hear this? Remember to share, like, comment and subscribe. And if you haven't listened to part one yet, do it now. Thanks again from your host, the smart world architect, Nicholas Wern.